This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 367th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by I May Destroy You, the fearless HBO original series written by and starring Michaela Cole. The Atlantic hails the series as, quote, a brilliant, explosive consideration of modern sexual mores, close quote. I May Destroy You, now streaming on HBO Max, for your awards consideration. And now down to business. My guest today is arguably the most popular comedy actor of the past 25 years. He is best known, according to The Atlantic, for his, quote, surreal satires of American arrogance, buffoons invested with the genuine belief that what they're doing is special, close quote. And as the Daily Beast put it, quote, a master of buffoonish absurdity, whose gift for juvenile nonsense, often laced with explosive aggression, has rightly made him a Hollywood A-lister, close quote. He made his name on seven seasons of Saturday Night Live, spanning 1995 through 2002, and has since been identified as the funniest cast member in that iconic show's history by numerous media outlets and surveys, including one by Grantland. After leaving SNL, he shifted full-time to movies and quickly became one of the most consistent box office attractions in the business. Via laugh-out-loud comedies like 2003's Old School and Elf, 2004's Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, 2006's Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, 2008's Step Brothers, 2010's The Other Guys, 2014's Get Hard, and The Lego Movie, and the list goes on. In The Guardian's assessment, quote, no other comedic actor working today has played and often written as many memorable roles, close quote. He has accumulated 16 Emmy nominations, and interestingly enough, each of his three Emmy wins came for producing, twice for live in front of a studio audience, and once for succession. His pair of Golden Globe noms came for 2005's The Producers and 2006's Stranger Things, and he was the 2011 recipient of perhaps the highest honor in the comedy world, the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. I'm talking, of course, about Will Ferrell. Over the course of our New Year's Day conversation, the 53-year-old and I discussed his reluctant and circuitous journey to the world of comedy, followed by an explosive ascension up its ranks, his remarkably fruitful collaboration with the writer-director Adam McKay, 
and with the fellow actors who comprise the so-called frat pack, his most popular SNL sketches and blockbuster films, and his latest comedic turn in 2020's Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, which he co-wrote and in which he stars, which is streaming on Netflix, and which is now nominated for the Grammy for Best Compilation Soundtrack for Visual Media, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, happy new year, uh, first of all. And it's great to have you. I've been so looking forward to this. And just to kind of contextualize what we do on this podcast, we, uh, go back to the very beginning and just talk about how some of our you know favorite artists got to do what they do. I've tried to do as much um, reading ahead of this as I can. <laughs> okay. So hopefully, hopefully I have some interesting stuff. Uh, but first, just the, the most basic, can you share with our listeners, where were you uh, born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was, uh, I was born in Newport Beach, California, and grew up on the mean streets of Irvine, um, very, very tough upbringing, uh, which <laughs> informed my comedy. Um, but, uh, yeah, I had a, uh, pretty, pretty suburban, uh, upbringing and, uh, my mom was in education and my dad was a musician and it was a, it was a divorced household, but it was, um, but they were pretty good about co-parenting. Uh, right. They, they, yeah. So they 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 did a decent job of uh, you know kind of providing that kind of stability and yeah went to uh, went to USC. Well, let me stop you before yeah. we get there yeah, because sure. I just um, I mean first of all when we've had a, a lot of folks from the world of comedy on this podcast and it seems like more often than not they've had some dark thing in their past aside from the divorce uh, I'm not finding that really for you you seem to have had a happy uh, childhood. So I wonder, uh, A, if that's in fact correct, and B, if it is correct, where do you think this, Where when did when did the uh, kind of desire to make people laugh first emerge, and why do you, where do you think it came from? Well, I, yeah, I've been asked that a lot, and uh, I think I fail to answer it every single time, uh, <laughs> but I will attempt again. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't really have... Uh, the classic story that, as you as you were saying, you can kind of pinpoint to where it all began. You know, the thought mm-hmm. that I would try to get into comedy. I mean, if if anything, 
it was quite the opposite. I was, uh, like I said, it was still, despite my folks getting divorced pretty early on, it was, it was a, it was a relatively stable upbringing. And if anything, I saw my dad struggle as a musician and mm-hmm. thought to myself, well, I'm never doing that. And I'm mm-hmm. going to, I used to talk about having a normal job. I was going to have a normal job. And I even envisioned almost in a 1950s kind of sense, I didn't know what that job was going to be, but my earliest memories were I was going to carry a briefcase and <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to, uh, uh, yeah, go uh, take some sort of form of mass public transit and uh, go to my job, <laughs> wear a suit right. and sit in an office and, and, and I would have a happy life. Uh, and so that was, that was kind of what I thought I was going to do. And then along the way, I think it just, it slowly started to unravel the fact that I was drawn to entertainment and mm-hmm. I did in, I just was fascinated by comedy. I enjoyed making my friends laugh. And uh, yeah, so it just kind of, it was just something that it it was almost like a a low simmer, if you know, in terms (laughs) of if it was a, if it was a a recipe or a dish, it just kept simmering until it was a boil. And then I I had to figure out what to do with it. So a couple of just incremental things that I've read, I don't know, you know, stop me if any of these are wrong, but first grade was when the you know, you can hit yourself, you can make it look like you've hit yourself with a door. That was the early, one of the earlier laughs that you figured out. How yes. To physical get. comedy, <laughs> any sort of pratfall. Right. I, right. I was, that was a big hit. Yep. Okay. So fourth grade, you have to do an essay and about what you, you know, I guess what you want to be when you grow up. <laughs> right. What was that? And that, well, and so then that, that points to, I was thinking about it in the fourth grade. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I wrote, I, I was going to be a professional soccer player. And in the off season, I was going to be a comedian. Uh, so, <laughs> so just on the side, yeah, just yeah. it was, but it was a side gig. It wasn't, it wasn't gonna, it wasn't how I was gonna make money. I was gonna do something right. really stable, like be a professional soccer player. You know, right in the United States. You know how that goes, of course, uh, of course. Um, yeah, so I know that's that's kind of a funny, uh, a funny thing. But but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even allow myself to think that 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 we would just be a side a side hobby <laughs> well so here's the next one then yeah. uh did something involve class of 85 t-shirts uh the class of yeah we were the class of 86 actually class uh, of 86 yeah. so uh, was there something over the pa system in high school now yeah that was that was another little little hint of an event that kind of made me think, hmm, I wonder if this is something that I could maybe do. We, yeah, we had a, um, it was it was a senior class t-shirt kind of campaign to sell these t-shirts to raise money for our, whatever the senior trip was. And a group of friends, my, my friend Steve was our class president, uh, Steve Baldakoski, who's actually a, a, a comedy writer, a longtime sitcom writer. And uh, Steve had come to myself and my friend Bart and said, can you guys think of like some, we need some sort of, you know, basically what was a radio campaign for the morning announcements that took place in between first and second period to, uh, to push, you know, the, the sell of these senior class t-shirts. And we, we, we basically every week would write what were, you know, uh, amounted to be radio plays, little, little radio mm-hmm. skits. And 
I can remember we trade off each day. Mm -hmm. And, and I remember one night I, I don't think I did. I didn't do any of my homework that night. And I spent four <laughs> hours crafting basically a paragraph. Right. And, uh, and I thought it had taken me 20 minutes and it had taken me four hours. But, but, the, but the point was, it was so much fun. And the time flew by that I, I, I thought, oh, that I should remember this feeling because this didn't feel hard and it felt fun. And the next morning we read our little thing and, and people loved it. So that, that was another little small reinforcement that possibly, but still, it still wasn't big enough. It still, I still wasn't right. thinking I would do this. So as you mentioned, eventually you do go off to USC and uh, I believe majored in something that's no longer even offered there as a major now, <laughs> sports information, right. Um, right. I guess with the eye towards becoming a broadcaster. Um, but even before you graduated class of 1990, it seems like you were becoming associated to others as you know, at this point now, the funny guy. Who was Professor Gottesman? Uh, yeah, there was a, a Professor Gottesman who um, was one of these heavyweight teachers at USC. He was uh, a huge uh, lit professor, American lit, and in fact was one of the editors of the Norton Anthology of Literature. So like a high level guy. And uh, right. a good buddy of mine from my fraternity was was in this class, this, this American lit class. And he, I, I don't know how we stumbled across it, but we had figured out that my work study job coincided with, was at the same time with when he was taking this English class. And that mm -hmm. I don't know how it first started, but I decided he, he, he either coaxed me or I, I figured out that I would come inter, in, interrupt his class as a janitor. <laughs> and uh, leave, and I had a work study job where it basically they didn't know I was there or not there, so it was perfect. Uh, and I found I, I cobbled together some sort of outfit that looked like a janitor, and uh, <laughs> stole like a you know a mop uh, from a from a closet and a bucket, and I just on a lark, and this was just to make the few friends I knew in this class laugh. Yeah. I interrupted this class and the teacher looked at me, uh, this wonderful professor was like, can I help you? And I was like, and I had a lit cigarette yeah. and like dishwashing gloves on and I'm smoking the cigarette and I took like the longest pause and I'm like, gosh, I'm sorry. No one threw up in here. And he's like, no, it's like, ah, they told me someone threw up in here. My apologies. And I could see that this super intellectual was kind of trying not to laugh. And, right. and then I left and my friends were like, that was hilarious. And then, uh, my friend Emil, who was, who was my kind of my partner in crime said, by the way, the, the professor Gottesman keeps asking, when is your buddy going to come back? And that led to a string of me interrupting his class as a janitor. And he played right along with it. And, uh, in fact, he sort of encouraged there, right? Yeah, he did. He, he was, uh, and and I I, I kind of I commented on it in uh, the commencement speech I gave to USC a couple years ago, mm -hmm. that when I when I sat down to write that speech and I I, I I tried to think of who were the people that kind of inspired me and coaxed me along, it, it was the first time I realized that he was one of those people who would, mm. would grab me as we walked around campus, like a fellow colleague, and go, "Will, what's up?" I haven't seen you. Like, when are you coming by? <laughs> I was like, oh, well, how about next Tuesday? You're like, great. I love it. What do you, what do you think you're going to do? Uh, maybe I'll come in with like a drill bit and I'll pretend to like 
fix a light socket. He's like, perfect. Okay. And, uh, and, and that was just one of those people. I mean, I'm sure as you've talked to people, there's just people along the way who have kind of given you the confidence to explore these things. And it is, it's ironic that it wasn't a, wasn't an acting coach, wasn't a comedy mm-hmm. person. It was just a, uh, was just someone in academia who was like, that's really funny what you're doing. Please keep it up. I love that. Well, even that was not yet enough to convince you to sort of change your (laughs) um, plans because I know you graduated in 1990. And then can you just share how the next few years of your life unfolded until your, your mother, again, of all people, I guess, was sort of did an intervention? Yeah. No, uh, I, I, of course, graduate USC. I have no job prospects whatsoever. So I, of course, move right back home and uh, I'm there and I'm trying to figure out how to get a job in broadcasting because that's what uh, my degree was in. And so I'm working at a local uh, cable news station and, and it's, it's, it's a pretty decent thing. It's, it's um, people get hired out of this, this place. It was called around and about Orange County News. And, uh, and it was operated out of a junior college. And so I'm working on that show and, and, and doing all right. And, but at the same time, the comedy itch that needed to be scratched was, was still there. And my mom kind of sat me down and was just like, what's the plan? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I said, uh, well, that's a great question. I go, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> I got, I'm enrolled at, I'm, I'm working on the, on the local show. So that's good. And, and I go, but I think I really want to try exploring comedy. And mm-hmm. she had said, uh, okay, well, here's, here's the deal. Let's just treat these next two years, whatever they're going to be as your grad school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I thought, okay, she's like, you know, you just got to work and, you know, I, I just need, you got to get your gas money and, but I won't charge you rent and this, that, and the other. And I said, great, let's, and she, uh, she actually enrolled me as a, as a gift in a, a, a scene study class at South Coast Repertory Theater, uh, down in Orange County, which, which is a pretty, pretty great, uh, rep company, Tony mm-hmm. Award, uh, nominated company mm-hmm. and, uh, started taking classes there, started, I found an, uh, a stand-up comedy workshop in an extension, Irvine Valley College extension course book. And I signed up for that. And, uh, and then I also signed up for my first class at the Groundling. So all, all three of those, all those things were swirling about. And while, you know, during the, those days, is that when, I, I mean, I'd read you were a bank teller, a hotel yeah. valet, a bunch, that's yeah. the gas money? That's the gas. Those are the gas money jobs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Worked at a real estate auction company, answering phones. Uh, yeah. Kind of, I, I, I yeah. somehow avoided being a waiter. I don't, I don't know how, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> those, those were the weird jobs that I would work out that people were like, wait, you're trying to be a comedian. I don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so meanwhile, the groundlings, which I think you had first encountered while you were still at USC. Now you're just as an audience member, I guess, now you're, you, as you say, you start taking classes there. And I think from, I believe it's, it's hard to believe, but within just 18 months of starting there, just at the bottom, can you explain just what happens with, over the course of those 18 months? Yes. Well, a lot of times 
the, the classes at the Groundlings are so impacted. It's really hard to, once you finish one level, it'll take another three to six months before another spot opens up for the next level. And even with that wait time, I was able to kind of go through the school and then you get into what's called the Sunday Company, which is their kind of minor league team. And uh, you have to do at least a year uh, on that stage and then you're voted into the main company. And I somehow, yeah, I had, I kind of had just a super prolific time while I was in the Sunday Company was with a bunch of other funny people. So it was just, it was just great to collaborate and then got voted into the main company. And within that first six months, that just timed out. That would have been the, uh, the spring of uh, 1995 in mm -hmm. which uh, Saturday Night Live, NBC had decided to make some wholesale changes with the cast and they were really doing one of those old fashioned nationwide searches and, stopping it every, everywhere from Second City to comedy clubs to the Groundlings in LA. And, uh, and they happened to all come and, and see a bunch of us, which kicked off the, the process of auditioning for that. Right. And I just want listeners to note that I believe while you were at the Groundlings at the same time as Sherry O'Terry, Chris Kattan, Jennifer Coolidge, among others, and that those were also, that they were along with you invited to New York now to to go through this audition process, which um, is not, uh, you know, I've, I've heard that this can be quite a ordeal and then you don't even really realize that it's over because yeah. I guess Lauren doesn't, isn't clear about uh, necessarily when you're hired. Um, and I, I just wonder if you can talk about that process for you because it was a thrill and an honor to get to have him on this podcast, but I experienced firsthand what I think a little bit of what you must have felt because you get ushered into this office and there's a million things going on and there's people moving <laughs> around and, and it's yep. like, you know, I don't think it's that he's not a nice guy, but he's just inherently intimidating. Yeah. It's a, it's like going into combat a little bit. Uh, <laughs> well, I've never been in combat, so, <laughs> but I, I, I can imagine on a small, yeah. <laughs> small, very yeah. small scale. Yeah, it was, it was just very, the whole thing is exciting and surreal. Just to get that initial call, when we all talk together, everyone who's been on the show, everyone has had different experiences. And the the year that we all auditioned, that they had come to see us at the show. And then you got the call, hey, they want to fly you guys out to New York. So, wow, that, that and alone is just really mm -hmm. cool. And, uh, and so once you get over the excitement of that, it turns into what, what am I going to do? And the instructions were somewhat vague. It was, mm -hmm. it was do a, do a political impersonation. If you have one, a, a just kind of topical impersonation and then a character of your choice. And, uh, and just keep it under 10 minutes. And if you don't have any of that, just, just be funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you kind of, and then you're talking to everyone, what are you going to do? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. So, and then you sit, I just remember that we, we stayed at the Paramount hotel and, mm -hmm. um, you just sit by the phone and they said, <laughs> they, they give you a window of when they're going to call you. And then all of a sudden the phone rings and they're like, okay, start walking over to, to Rockefeller center. And, and you're just like, it's the longest walk, <laughs> whatever the, <laughs> the five blocks it was. And right. then, yeah, yeah. And then we were just all sitting in the dressing rooms 
people just, and you're waiting to be called out and, uh, and called out to 8H to studio 8H to, um, basically the studio, uh, studio 8H where they do the show and there's no audience. There's just a spotlight on the, uh, what's called the tongue of the stage where the host always gives the monologue, a camera, a camera operator, a boom operator with a mic. And that's it. And you're just <laughs> in a void <laughs> and, and you just had to go out there. The, the worst part was almost waiting outside the door being the next person. Cause you were listening <laughs> to someone else's audition and then you're trying to remember, what am I going to say? Okay. And you're, and you're looking at all the pictures of the, on the walls of all mm -hmm. the, the past casts and all the previous year's hosts. And it's all you can do to keep from running out the door and just say, it's too much. <laughs> it's just too much. <laughs> I got pretty close. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you what, though. We saw, I don't, I, I'm sure you're, you're aware of that, that the footage of your audition, or at least one, I think yeah. you had two. One yeah, of them is at least. Yeah. Yeah, it's online and it's great. I mean, you you seem to you did a good job of faking being cool, calm and, and collected because you came out. I think you I don't know if this is the right order of them, but you did Harry Carey. Right. You did uh, the dad barbecuing, yelling yep. at his kids to get yep. off the shed. Right. And then I think like, like a guy acting like a cat playing while he's on the office call, I think, playing with, <laughs> with cat toys, <laughs> yeah, which right. is so surreal. <laughs> Cause you're just, there's no one laughing. It's just in <laughs> right. silence and you just kind of go off to a weird place of like, how much longer should I play with these cat toys? Uh, <laughs> before I just pull the plug on the whole thing. Uh, right. but somehow all three of those things made it into sketches throughout my career at some point. Yes. Having survived the actual, uh, audition. Right. I hope you won't mind me asking you to share one, one, more time. I know you've told this story before, but it's so great. Just you now get called back essentially, right? To, to meet with Lauren. Yes. And how does, what were, what was your game plan for that? Well, I survived the first audition. We all survived. And the word on the street was the groundlings had done really well. And so myself and Sherry and Chris all got called back and which was once again, really exciting. And, and, and you always hear, I'd, I'd never had a callback before for anything. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I just started auditioning for, uh, I don't even think I did audition for a sitcom at that time. Uh, I'd been mm -hmm. auditioning for commercials and this and that, but I'd, all, I'd always heard if you got called back to network, you should just do exactly what you'd been doing because that's what got you there. So, yeah. so then there was a, what was going to happen is there were going to be another callback, but a, you're going to meet with Lauren and then you're going to have the audition the next day. And I had read in an article that Adam Sandler had been hired on the spot because he had a, a five minute meeting. And I'm sure only part of this is true, but he'd had a very brief meeting with Lauren. He did a bit where he humped a chair <laughs> and he, in, in Lauren's office, in Lauren's office and he was hired on the spot. And I remember thinking, God, good for him. That guy was just, he, he threw caution to the wind and he just, and I said, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring a suitcase. Once again, back to a briefcase. Briefcase comes yes. full circle. <laughs> I'm going to bring a briefcase full of toy money, money that you'd buy at like a joke shop. <laughs> and I'm going to stack it and I'm going to make it look like $100,000 full of, of <laughs> fake money. 
and I'm going to walk in. I'm just going to, Lauren's going to probably start talking. I'm just going to start stacking money on his desk (laughs) and just say, Lauren, we can talk all day long, but we all know what really talks and that's money. And I'm going to walk out of this office and you can do whatever you want with this money. Uh, No one's going to know. But uh, I think you should hire me for the show. And I was just going to walk out. Right. (laughs) And so here I am waiting as you have done outside of his office. And it's a whirlwind of activity and people and phone calls. And they're like, well, he'll get to you in one second. And I'm sitting there and I walk, the moment comes and I sit in and they call me in and, and there's Steve Higgins who just been hired as the head writer. And I come in and it's immediately clear to me that this is not, (laughs) it's very serious. It's a very (laughs) serious tone. And Lauren starts asking me, what am I going to do for my audition? And I start to go through the checklist and he's like, I wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't do that. And I said, oh, so basically come in with a brand new. (laughs) Oh my Yeah. And he said, well, yes, you know, I, I, and in hindsight, what he, he was kind of just wanted me to show some, some, kind of diversity in the sketches I was doing. And, mm-hmm. uh, he was really looking out for me, but it, it didn't come across that my, what in my mind, I'm like, I've got to revamp my entire audition. Meanwhile, I'm clutching this briefcase <laughs> and I just kept thinking, what comedy guy carries a briefcase? Like, what are they thinking? <laughs> and finally the meeting just ends and Lauren's like, anything else? And I go, uh, I don't think so. And and he, go, he, look, he turns to Steve and he goes, Steve? And Steve goes, nice briefcase. I'm like, oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> and so I leave totally just, not only did I not get to do my hilarious bit, <laughs> but I am panic stricken because I have to go back and revamp my audition. Only, <laughs> only to have another meeting three weeks later, which was the meeting where I ultimately get hired. And I start... They say, Lauren wants to meet with you again. I'm like, really? What, what is it now? He just wants to talk to you some more. And I go, damn it. I'm bringing the briefcase. I'm going to do my bit no matter what. And as soon as I walk in, the assistant goes, you can leave your briefcase. You don't need to bring that. So I left it. And that's when he tells me I'm, I've been hired. And I say to the assistant, I go, here, can you give Lauren some of this fake money? I've been trying to give it to him for <laughs> two different times. And then she gave it to him. And in hindsight, he thought it was so funny that I was trying to do this bit that never, <laughs> never happened. <laughs> never came off. Never came off. Oh, that's great. And, uh, oh, my God. So. Well, you know, obviously, we all remember you as one of the maybe the funniest uh, person ever on SNL. Just so many great things that I just want to quickly run off a few for our listeners to just bring back some images. Of course, uh, Gene Frankel, the, <laughs> the, uh, from the cowbell, uh, right. more cowbell sketch, uh, Alex Trebek taunted by Connery, James Lipton. Uh, I always loved that. And I know he did too. Yeah. Uh, we talked about it on his episode of this Craig, the Spartan spirit cheerleader, Marty Culp, the middle school music teacher, and of course, George W. Bush. But, you know, it's easy now to look back and say, you know, it was obvious that you were going to be great and you were made for this show and vice versa. But at the beginning, when you're coming into a show that was pretty down the toilet when you joined it, and then even, I guess, during the first season that you were with it, you were not necessarily being warmly received, right? No. In fact, um, 
my last year on the show, Tom Shales was backstage and Tom Shales is kind of, you know, super famous, uh, critic for the Washington Post who, uh, mm-hmm. and Tom Shales is backstage and he's like, Hey, I hear this is your last season. Wow. Congrats. Like what you've had such a great run. And he's like, he's like, sorry about all the stuff I wrote about you <laughs> early on. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> what did you write? I, I didn't even know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that first year, um, it was, it was definitely, and I, I, it was even the first show right out of the gate. Uh, I was, <laughs> I was reviewed as in one of those magazines that doesn't exist anymore as the most annoying newcomer. And, uh, <laughs> and at first it was such a, obviously it was like a little bit of a blow, but then I just kind of. It just, I just started giggling about it, and I actually put the article up on my on my door of my <laughs> office, <laughs> and, and then I had someone had a a, a little uh, like a little nameplate on your desk made for me that mm-hmm. said "most annoying newcomer," <laughs> and I put that on my desk too, and it, it just I just said, well, at least I was mentioned by name, uh, right? And, <laughs> and uh, but at first it be it, it, it was like you're the, you're the guy, you're really loud and there's no kind of tack to what you do. And, but I have to say, uh, I was rather oblivious to all of it. And we were in such a bubble with just trying to get the show to not be canceled. (laughs) And, (laughs) and, and it was, it was really, uh, it was a, you know, it was a brand new cast, pretty much a brand new writing staff. And we were all, it was, it was so exciting. It was really, uh, we did, I don't think we realized what level of scrutiny we were under. And, and if you, if you remember back, NBC was just killing everyone. That's when they had friends and, uh, mad West about Wayne. you and yeah. like, they, their lineup was insane in prime time. And the only thing they really had to, to tinker with was late night. And so all the, uh, you know, Warren Littlefield and everyone was really trying to quote unquote fix SNL. But we were just, we were all like, for most of us, our first job, just having a great time. And, and we just had our backs against the wall. And, uh, and, and that's kind of when a lot of great stuff happens. As you look back at those seven seasons with the show, and, you know, we, I mentioned some of the characters that we, that are most associated with you, but do you, do you find that you gravitated towards either playing or writing for yourself or having others write for you specific types of character archetypes? I don't know what the right word would be, but did you, is there a way to boil it down to what you, what your greatest strength was on, in terms of performance on that show? Well, I, I mean, I would say in terms of what I wanted to be on the show, the guys I looked up to the most were, were Dan Aykroyd and Phil Hartman. And to some extent, uh, Jane Curtin, because they, they were, I just loved how they could be by, they could be the funny person in the sketch. They could be the focal point at the same time. They could, uh, they could also just be the straight man and service it and somehow still get a laugh. And yeah, and I, I made a point to tell the writers, um, because I think a lot of, you know, some of the cast and some of the people were, were you know, and, and it's hard not to, because because I was written for a lot right out of the gate. So I, I, I understand that I kind of came from a, 
a, a place of privilege in that regard. But I made a point to tell the, to the writers like, Hey, if you don't ever worry, if you need a guy to deliver a pizza in a sketch and just have one line, I love those parts almost as much as, is carrying the whole sketch on my back because that that's just, you can just make a weird entrance or a, I don't know, a, adopt an accent for no reason. Or it was just, I go, I, I don't view those as small. They're, they're just to be cliche. There were just no small parts in my head. And I, right, I, I made a point right. to tell the writers that like, uh, because there were some people got bummed out and people were like, really, that's all I get to do. And I just was like, no, don't, don't view it that way. Um, and yeah, I got, I got really, really great advice from, uh, Kevin Nealon. So Kevin Nealon sees me, he comes to a show towards the tail end of our first season when I think people were kind of going, Hey, the, they're not bad. They're pretty good. And Nealon was like, he was being really funny. He's like, y- you're tall, like me, tall guys do good on the show. <laughs> and I go, Oh, okay. <laughs> and then he goes, no, but seriously, he goes, don't, uh, don't worry about trying to score every week. He goes, view it like a view it like a baseball season. Like you, mm-hmm. if you can look back and there were 10 different shows where you had some really funny stuff, you've had a great year. And that was yeah. my attitude. Well, during the course of, I guess, in between seasons, during while you were on the show is when you first started getting into movies. And some of them were SNL spinoffs like Night at the Roxbury and Superstar. Then there's the couple of the Austin Powers movies. And of course, Zoolander as uh, Mugatu. Um, but they were not Will Ferrell vehicles. So I wonder what was it that finally convinced you to make the break from SNL? And in that moment, when you walked off, you know, the stage at 8H, let's say for the first time, it was the last show was, or for the final time, I should say the last show, May 18th, 2002, did you already have things lined up that gave you confidence that you had a viable career from outside of SNL? Or was that just uh, a gamble? No, it was, it was more of a gamble. It was more of a, just a uh, leap of faith in, in the sense that it, it, it really was, it was, it wasn't that there were, you know, all these scripts piled up and people wanting to, you know, definitely people were starting to want to meet with me and that sort of thing. But it was really more that uh, seven years felt like the perfect amount of time. I, I, um, I mean, you know, if, if someone had put a contract in, in my face and said, Saturday Night Live is the only thing you'll ever get to do. I would have signed it, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was so much fun. It was just, there's nothing like doing that show, but I, I was like, for better, or for worse, this is just a perfect time to leave. I've, I've been here long enough. It doesn't feel too short. It doesn't feel like I've been here too long and let's just see what's out there. And, uh, the only thing we, re- there, there weren't any, I didn't have a lot of development going on. I had, this movie called Old School that had been pushed, which mm-hmm. is not usually a good sign in Hollywood. It had been <laughs> held on to and wasn't coming out till uh, February of, you know, the following year. I And then the only other thing we were working on was this, this script that needed a lot of work about a human raised by elves at the North Pole. <laughs> and, and that's all, that's all I knew that I was working on, but kind of thought now's the time. Well, with your permission, I would love to just prompt you for just a sh- short memory or, or two about some of these real standout movies along the way to Eurovision, which, of course, we're going to focus on. But I, yeah. I wonder if it's all right. Let's start with with Frank the Tank uh, from 
old school. This was one of the, this is Todd Phillips directing, it's 2003. It's one of the rare instances in your career. You're basically a hired gun, not a, also a writer producer. Aside from being the first time that we got to see you run around naked on screen, <laughs> it was, uh, it was also the, I guess the beginning of seeing you and what came to be known as the frat pack beginning to form just this group of guys that would often show up in each other's movies. But I guess at that point, you, Luke Wilson, Vince Vaughn, just, um, did you guys have any sense that this was going to have the life that it had? No, I knew we, we all were each day we were loving working together. We, it kind of, it was had that feeling of like, we just kept going, this feels funny, right? Yeah. It feels funny. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. No, this feels good. And, uh, and I, I, I do remember thinking it's such a unique premise, but even then we would sit when we saw it all put together and we, we'd sit with an audience in the screening and, and it played really well and all this stuff, we'd still leave kind of going, look, I, I'm happy with it. We still weren't like, oh my gosh, this is going to kill. And so um, I think we, I think we just viewed it as, Hey, we, we, we put our best foot forward. Let's just see what happens. But no, I don't, I don't think there was any, um, there was any kind of supreme confidence, uh, especially considering it was put out there in February, which is not, you know, it's not like prime real estate for, uh, but it found its way somehow. And, uh, uh, that was what, that's what was just, was really cool. Um, yeah. Cause it opened while I was shooting elf and I remember shooting up in Vancouver, watching like the local entertainment reporter for, you know, the Vancouver news, going, you guys have to see this movie, I'm telling you. And I thought, okay, that's a good sign. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned Elf. This is directed by John Favreau. It's you as Buddy, of course. Uh, guy raised in the North Pole believes he's one of Santa's elves. Now, I first time. this is the first time that you're solo anchoring a movie. Right. And I initially had assumed that it came about because Old School had been successful, but I guess... It was already greenlit yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, did not have a big budget, but did very well. And I guess that was when suddenly studios became really interested again in doing, you know, studio comedies. Is that, did you get a sense that from the success of that is where they suddenly were like, wait a minute, these things can actually make a lot of money. There's a big audience for them. Um, and this, this is a guy we want to work with. Well, that was definitely the case in just in terms of, of my kind of, uh, stock had risen personally. Uh, I, I kind of feel like though, that was, that was right in the sweet spot of all these kind of these movies that were in that 20 to $40 million range that, you know, were kind of these high concept driven comedies by, as you said, a, a familiar group of comedians that, and you can kind of go down the list from Wedding Crashers to School of Rock to, uh, there's just like a 10 year period where everything was just, it just worked great. And the audience mm. really, that's what they want to do. But, but yeah, that Elf, Elf kind of came online and, but even, I would even say old school uh, Adam and I had been shopping around the Anchorman script for a while and no one wanted to touch it. And then DreamWorks didn't realize that they had the rights to Anchorman 
<laughs> so when old school opened, they all of a sudden were like, wait, we think we want to do that now. And it's all uh, of a sudden, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, you know, that's the way it goes. But, uh, and then, and then with, with Elf's opening weekend, then it was kind of, uh, it definitely kind of, I think, secured my, my spot there. Yeah. So just to contextualize again, old school is 2003, Elf is 2003, and then Anchorman Legend of Ron Burgundy comes out in 2004, you playing this uh, sexist, stupid local TV newsman. Um, and I, you mentioned Adam. Adam is Adam McKay. Yeah, yes. You yeah. co-wrote it with him. Uh, I believe this was his directorial yep. debut. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if you can just talk about who, how you guys first met and why for a lot of years you worked so well together. Yeah, we first met at, uh, at the show at Saturday Night Live. In fact, I think we were even hired on the same day. Uh, obviously, Adam as a writer. And, uh, and we just started, uh, we started writing sketches together and realized that we, uh, we had a lot of the same comedy tastes as well as a working style, which was to, to not overthink it <laughs> and mm -hmm. just to work really fast and, and mm -hmm. maybe look at it a second time, but for the most part, go with that first <laughs> gut uh, yeah. thing. And, yeah. and then, uh, I knew that I had a, uh, I had one more, uh, off of my Roxbury deal. There was one more obligation I had to do for Paramount. And I had, I had, turned to Adam, I said, would you ever want to write a feature together? He was like, let's do it. And we had mm. written this script called August Blowout that never got made, but it really got passed around. This was, this was kind of about a, a Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross meets a car dealership, meets used cars. And it was, <laughs> it was, is, is about a group of weird, you know, eccentric, horrible car dealer guys and, <laughs> and whatever that world is. And, uh, right. um, and that, that kind of was a really nice uh, calling card for our tone and and kind of set the table for, uh, I remember Paul Thomas Anderson had read that and said, wow, what, would you guys want to write something else? And that's when the, that's when the Anchorman idea came around. But then we've, we went on to, to uh, create uh, uh, Step Brothers together, Talladega Nights, uh, the other guys, um, yeah, just a lot of great oh, stuff. Ton. Yeah. In addition to, of course, uh, Funnier Die with starting with the landlord, which we should just, if people don't know, <laughs> right. that's you acting out. The, the landlord was the first thing of Funnier Die back in 2007. That's you and and his Adam's daughter, uh, Pearl. Right. Yeah. Pearl. Yeah. Then you guys produced stuff like Succession. You've won your Emmys for producing people may not realize yeah, not yeah. for uh anyway but it's funny because I, I did come across something where back when they were giving you guys a hard time about not wanting to make anchorman i guess they were saying kids are not going to find 70s newsmen to be funny right, right and what was the what was the retort to that well we it was like, look, this, try to think of it as what Austin Powers was to the spy genre, you know? Yes. Uh, yes. And in fact, we had it uh, for, there was one financier, we staged this, this read through and the guy, the read, through, it just killed. And we'd gotten a bunch of different actors to come in, a bunch of our friends. And, and we were, it was literally a basically audition to get, get it financed. And this, the read through was over and we're all kind of, you know, patting each other on the back. And this guy was laughing. He was wiping the tears from his eyes. Like, oh my gosh, that is the funniest read through I have ever been to. 
we will never make this movie. Oh, <laughs> and we're like, wait, why? He's like, ah, yeah. I can't convince my guys. I mean, they're not, they don't understand why. <laughs> I'm like, but they're just funny characters. Don't think of it. Take away the news right. thing. And, right. but it just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an old story in Hollywood. You kind of have to, you know, everyone's always having to re-educate everyone every right. now and then. Yeah. So, uh, that same year was uh, Melinda and Melinda for Woody Allen. And then you had one of your first cameos the next year where sometimes it's, uh, you know, this was really a, a testament to you already this early in your career that you could enter a, a movie in silhouette for five minutes and essentially steal the show, which was in Wedding Crashers. You're playing Chaz Reinhold, the guy who picks up women at funerals. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I guess just if... Anything you want to say about the fact that you show up for your friends in in a even a small role there, like Starsky and Hutch, they showed up similarly for you. There, what I know that the idea of the frat pack is probably overblown, but just the there weren't necessarily previous generations where people did that for each other. No, I, I think it's just kind of uh, it was really unique in that um, uh, for some reason I think everyone felt confident enough to, I guess there was, there was enough of the pie to go around. No one felt competitive in that way. Everyone just was a fan of each other's comedy. And, and yeah, I think it's just a, 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 a little moment in time where uh, a bunch of people who were all kind of at an equal level of fame and notoriety were willing to mm -hmm. like help each other out. And yeah. uh, I don't know how to analyze it any more than that. Maybe, maybe, maybe oh. the fact that we we weren't um, we didn't come from the stand up world, which can be you know by its nature, it's just a little more cutthroat, a little more competitive. Yeah. And uh, but it was it was always yeah, it was just fun. We 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 do each other's read throughs. We like you said, show up and do cameos, and uh, it was. Yeah. Uh, it was just a fun way to, to kind of uh, spread the wealth, so to speak. But, but yeah, I don't, it's, it's weird. It's weird that, that it, that it happened that way. It's so great. I mean, I just rewatched that, that clip to ahead of this again, uh, the mom, where's the meatloaf? Yeah. And, and, and once again, <laughs> just great. stuff I was improvising that I'm like, this is never going to make it. And <laughs> <laughs> it's classic. And, and, but you, you know, you never know. Thanks Thanks, David Dobkin, for keeping it in. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so 2006, there's two movies that couldn't be much more different. Stranger Than Fiction for Mark Forster. You're playing, this is your first foray into drama. You're playing Harold Crick, a tax accountant who begins to hear his life being narrated by a novelist. And I have read you said to the New York Times that watching that movie, you were crying throughout it, that it was just there's something about maybe the freedom to not, uh, here's how you put it. it, quote, it was so freeing to not run around and act like a crazy person, close <laughs> quote. Um, talk about that. Like just what, what, were you having a yearning even before that to, to just see what you could do in, in the world of drama? No, it just kind of fell in my lap. It, it, it became a thing where, uh, my name, I think got, got pitched, uh, through, you know, through the agents and, uh, met with Mark, obviously read the script, which was just to this day, one of the best scripts I've ever read. And, and it, it just kind of chose me in a way. And yet, and I kept getting asked, like, was it hard for you to not want to like, 
make a funny face or do something crazy. I was like, no, it was great. It was great to play like a real grounded person and, and let the, let the context and the character and the words work for themselves. And, uh, I just had the best, yeah, it was just it, to this day, one of the best experiences and, and that, mm. and an amazing cast. And yeah, I just felt like, I'm just like, okay, I am on the Harlem Globetrotters. I just, I just can't drop the ball. I don't want to be the <laughs> one guy who is like, uh-oh, Dustin Hoffman just gave you a layup and you blew it. Uh, but, no, but yeah, it, it, was a, it was a really special uh, special experience, yeah. Yeah, really good movie. I hope people, if they haven't seen it, they should. And that same year was, again, couldn't be more different, but also a very special Talladega Nights, the Battle of Ricky Bobby. Ricky Bobby, this NASCAR driver who only believes in winning, and sounds a little bit like your George W. Bush that you had done. <laughs> um, so this was you and McKay co-wrote it. He directed it. And unlike with Anchorman at, its, at the early days uh, when you had to kind of fight to get people interested, here there really was a, a this is one of the earliest sort of bidding wars for a Farrell McKay movie, right? Yeah, it was. And uh, it was it was uh, it was kind of the byproduct of having to struggle to get a movie like Anchorman even read. And I remember saying to Adam, you know, next time we should just pick a topic that's really popular <laughs> and then <laughs> try to write a movie around that. And I go, for instance, like right. NASCAR, <laughs> everyone loves NASCAR. And Adam called me back. He's like, that is actually a really good idea. And, and we start, and that's how it started. And, uh, and Adam kind of went in and said, okay, it's basically, it's Will as a NASCAR driver. <laughs> and people were like, okay, got it, done. Let's, uh, let's, let's do it. And, uh, and so Sony, yeah, that Sony just let us create a whole world. Well, and that was the beginning of a streak of sports related Will Ferrell movies, because that was 2006. Then 2007 is Blades of Glory or Chaz Michael Michaels, the sex addicted figure skater. Then 2008 is Semi-Pro, uh, the owner coach star of this semi-professional basketball team. And I just I've always I just have to very, very quickly tell you that years after Blades of Glory came out, my best friend, we went to play tennis as grandparents had a tennis court in their backyard. And we went in afterwards to see this very old grandmother of his, who was, it was the Olympics were on at the time. It was the right. middle of the Olympics. And she had on the TV and we didn't see what she was watching, but she said, you guys have to come over here. These guys are real characters. And she thought that she was watching, <laughs> she thought she was watching the actual Olympics. That it was Blades well, of that, Glory. That is so funny so, because yeah. I did in promotion of Anchorman 2, we did a bunch of in-character stuff as Ron Burgundy, uh, <laughs> one of which being I went all the way, I went up to Ottawa for the Canadian finals of the National Curling Team Curling Championships. <laughs> and Ron Burgundy sat in the live broadcast of, of curling. And oh so I flew to Toronto after that and where we did a, a junket. And one of the, one of the reporters there said, my grandmother, same sort of thing, turned on curling and was like, there is some guy, this guy is the worst announcer I've ever heard with this mustache and this, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. And he's ruined, he's ruining the curling. And so that's probably that's great. one of many stories where I've yeah. ruined people's viewing experiences. 
<laughs> All right. Well, then uh, 2008 is one of the what, what I think it was Vanity Fair, somebody called your magnum opus of dim bulb man child ridiculousness, close quote. I think me- meant it compliment in a complimentary way. This was Step Brothers. Um, just to remind folks, Brennan Huff, 39 year old who lives at home with a single mom, who then in turn marries the single father of another 40 year old uh, who lives with him, played by John C. Riley. This was you and Riley for the second time after uh, Talladega. And I just wonder for you guys, you're so funny together. I don't know. I think he had I don't know how much he had been associated with comedies of this kind of sort before. How did you guys find each other and why why did that work so well? Well, we had always been a huge fan of John's and had had always noticed that in some of his movies, he, he within these performances, there's a lot of humor. And that, you know, his character in Boogie Nights, some of those scenes are some of the funniest scenes. Mm-hmm. They're just fantastic. Um, and, uh, and we had always talked, in fact, we tried to get John to be in the, uh, the uh, first Anchorman, but he was busy. And, and so we, did, we just always thought that guy would be great in a comedy and obviously hit it off so well in Talladega Nights. He was, he's, you know, kind of steals the show. And it was, and it was really John. It was like, Hey, let's do this again. Like, it's like this kind of chemistry doesn't exist. So we, we all put mm-hmm. our heads together again and that's how Step Brothers came about. And, that's great. um, yeah, it's just, we, we kind of share the same brain in terms of how, how to play comedy in a certain way. And John approaches it the same way he would a legitimate acting thing. And, mm-hmm. uh, just, <laughs> you just, you're playing the, no matter how ridiculous you are or your character is, you just always play it real. And, and that's, yeah. uh, that's what Step Brothers is. And just to remind people that was a movie that was that you and McKay co-wrote, he directed yeah. it. And then the only, McKay Farrell movie that you didn't co-write, in fact, I think was The Other Guys, which was uh, shortly after that. And that it just kind of leads into the fact that you've picked people, I think, went to when you are involved with not just starring in, but kind of bringing together these movies. You, you found such a variety of interesting, maybe unexpected people that you would be great with. So in The Other Guys case, it's Wahlberg and right. Get Hard, it's uh, Kevin Hart. I mean, these are these are not necessarily obvious picks. There are many others I could mention. I just wonder, how do you know, or can you know until you're actually, until the cameras are rolling, whether you are funny with somebody? Well, I, another person along those lines I'd put in that category is like a Richard Jenkins, who, who plays yes. our father in Step Brothers, and, and Mary Steenburgen as well. And I, I just know, I think a lot of it is, is having uh, worked on Saturday Night Live, where what I tended to notice was you would get what you would call a dramatic straight actor, uh, you know, and they were just usually the best hosts because they were just approaching it from the standpoint. It wasn't how, how do I, how am I going to be funny in this is it's more, Oh no, I'm just going to commit to the character and the rest will take care of itself. And usually right. those were the better shows. And, yeah, yeah. uh, and so that was always, it, it really informed the way, uh, at least for myself and a lot of the movies that I did with Adam, where we would just like try to find those people who like, Oh no, no, if they, if they do their thing, 
they're going to score and they don't need yeah. to do much more than that. And, uh, uh, and so that's, that's, that's kind of the approach. That's great. And then, uh, just one more to mention before Eurovision is, uh, everything must go another, uh, oh, yeah. dramedy yeah. drama leaning where you're so good. This is playing a guy who is an alcoholic, whose life falls apart all at once, job, car, house, marriage, basically gone in a day. He's living on his lawn this is a 2010 movie like the other guys, but adapted from a Raymond Carver short story. Talk about that one, because I think it's it's uh, underappreciated. Well, yeah, thanks. And I, I tend to agree <laughs> with you. Uh, no, that just is was this lovely script uh, written by Dan Rush, who was also the director. And uh, I'm I was just the I just benefited from the, from the fact that Dan was uh willing to wait for me. I was, I was busy doing the, uh, I did a, a, a one man show on Broadway, uh, where yes. I played George Bush and I had to finish that run. And, uh, and Dan was willing to wait for me to start this movie. And it was just, uh, once again, a, just a, a very kind of tragic, but funny story of, uh, a guy, as you mentioned, who's who's literally been locked out of his house and had everything taken away, and he just proceeds to live on his front lawn, mm -hmm. and the neighborhood just kind of accepts him. And the ambassador of the neighborhood is this little boy on a bike, played by uh, Christopher Wallace, and mm. they create this relationship. And it's uh, it's a very small, muted kind of lovely movie that I love when people have seen it. It's great. Yes. Well, so over the past decade, there's been such a variety of things that you've done, whether it's the voicing of the president business in Lego movie or going back to Anchorman. I think the only character you've revisited on the big screen. But one of my favorites, and I know I, a lot of my friends feel the same way, has been Eurovision, which if people haven't seen it, you're playing Lars Eric's song, which I <laughs> love that because a so-so uh, Icelandic singer who's always dreamed of competing in the Eurovision contest with his partner Sigrid, who privately yearns for uh, a relationship with him. This The full title, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. You co-wrote this with Andrew Steele. David Dopkin again directed it. What inspired you to tackle this song contest, which is a very real thing? And then when you write a script with with songs so integral to the plot, when with music so integral to the plot, do you have the songs first or do you leave spots and then have to figure that out? Because I guess without the songs, this movie is, um, you know, it's a there's a big hole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in answer to the first question, this was just an idea I've had for 20 years uh, and was assuming that someone was already going to beat me to the punch, but they never did. Uh, my wife and I, have we've been visiting, traveling to Sweden for the last 20 years. Uh, well, unfortunately, this was the first summer we didn't get to go. Um, but I think a lot of people haven't been able to go places yes. for the first time uh, this summer. <laughs> and... Uh, but my wife, uh, having been born in Sweden and her family's there and, and our first visit there, her cousin sat us down and said, let's watch the Eurovision Song Contest. And I, I, I you know, for, for your listeners who don't know, it's this, it's this contest that takes place in May of every year that is um, all the countries of Europe 
including Israel and Australia. <laughs> uh, uh, honorary. Honorary, yeah. yeah. And it was, it, was, it was kind of this goodwill gesture. It was created in kind of, for kind of post-war Europe in the late, middle to late 50s as, as kind of a kumbaya, let's hold hands and, and, you know, sing songs instead of fight each other. And it's just built up over time, you know, like ABBA got its start there. Celine Dion has sung in it. And it, it's, it, and it's something that they get over 200 million viewers a year to, but of course, America, we don't know anything about it. Um, but I, the first time I saw it, I was mesmerized by it because it's like, it's like American Idol meets Cirque du Soleil meets like a bad magic act. I don't, it's the craziest (laughs) thing if you, if you really watch it. And, uh, and I thought, God, someone's gonna, this is a movie. And, over the years, I kept waiting. Like no one's. That's so funny. No one's making a movie about Eurovision. I thought for sure someone over there would. And you know, five years ago, we just started exploring the opportunity, and to talk to the Eurovision people. And in typical European fashion, they were like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" <laughs> they're like, "We don't really need the publicity." I like, I know. And they're like, and "Like, and, and we're going to make fun." They're like, "No, you you probably should." And. Uh, <laughs> I go, but it's going to, but we're going to do it, you know, lovingly. And they're like, yeah. no, that's fine. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and they were great. And so we set out to start to, to build this team now in terms of, yeah, the song, I mean, the songs, this is like, talk about, I mean, that, that's the one thing I, I loved the most. And I think I love about this type of work is the ensemble is that film, tell whatever you're working on, it just takes a group of people to put it on. And this there is no truer statement than this movie uh, because Andrew and I, while writing the script, we really had placeholders just like, and now a song will be here and now a song will be here. <laughs> and, and that's when this incredible songwriting team, uh, Netflix was able to, to hook us up with Seven, who is this high level songwriter who had a real connection with this as well. And, uh, cause his wife is Swedish and he was like, Oh, I know Eurovision. And he, he, <laughs> he knocked it out of the park with, with, with a soundtrack that is, uh, really threads the needle between humorous, but at the same time, songs that you are guilty pleasures that you are kind of, Absolutely. you know, tapping your toe and, and you're like, wait a minute, I shouldn't like this song as much as I do. <laughs> well, and so you're talking here about the uh, compilation producer seven, yes. I believe it's Koteca, Koteca, and yeah. Koteca, and the music supervisor Becky Bentham, Bentham, who are now Grammy nominated for this so great. soundtrack. Yep. Yeah, best compilation soundtrack for visual media, and uh, it's made the Billboard charts. Some of these songs are independently popular, particularly in Iceland, which has got to be a nice compliment. But let's just, um, I'm going to just mention a few. If you have anything to say about the song, feel free to, to jump in. Otherwise, I'll just keep going. But I believe Volcano Man is the one that opens the movie. Um, yes, Volcano yeah. Man is, um, that's, I when Andrew and I were working on the script, I, I just said, you know what, Andrew, it'd be really funny to just start the movie. We knew we wanted to see the, 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 the movie opens with Lars and his family watching Eurovision. And Lars is a young boy. And it's, He's mesmerized by this and his and the, the family and the neighbors are all making fun of him. And he gives the one day I'll, sh- I'll prove you all wrong speech. 
in perfect English for no reason. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, and I said, it'd be really fun from that moment to just cut to a video reality <laughs> where we're just in the middle of a music video and it's, and we don't know, is it a dream world? Is it an actual, uh, uh, video for a song they're doing. And it, it turns out it's their imagination, but it's this right. wonderful song called Volcano Man that we shot on our last day of filming on this lava flow in Iceland, uh, which sweeping might be vistas. sweeping vistas. And <laughs> it is uh, a fantastic, fantastically stupid song. Um, yes. With a lot of close-ups of Lars mouth. Then there's Jaja Ding Dong, which is the one that uh, the Icelanders keep asking for, even after other songs become more famous. And this one is apparently now very popular in Iceland, actually. Yes, we've gotten word that this they now sing to this song in bars, <laughs> and it's become a bit of an anthem. Uh, but this is <laughs> this is the bar song that Fire Saga, which is the name of of Lars and Secret's band. Uh, they're forced to play it 20 times a night and they hate it and they really want to just play some of their original music, but they're, they're forced to play this over right. and over again. When I feel your gentle touch and things are going our way. Lion of Love. This is the one that uh, I believe Dan Stevens' character Lemtov does. It's a it's quite a spectacle. Uh, yeah, this is like a, a, a baritone power ballad uh, sung by yeah Dan Stevens, who's amazing as Lemtov, who's the favorite to win. The Russian is the favorite to win, and um, and he. It's funny. I, I you all go off in your separate while you're rehearsing and rehearse only your song. And when I saw how much Dan had to do. I was blown away. He's, uh, all that choreography and, uh, but yeah, Dan, Dan gives such an incredible performance in this movie. It's, uh, and I'm glad he's gotten a lot of, uh, acclaim for it. He deserves it. Yeah. I'll be the king you wanted. You'll be the queen I need. And on and on and on and on. Let's get together. Lion of 
you and Rachel McAdams had a lot of choreography to do, I believe, for the Double Trouble song, which is performed with you on the hamster wheel and her getting caught uh, in it and uh, all kinds of stuff there. Double Trouble is a catchy one. Yeah, Double Trouble. And that was the first song we heard from Seven and his team. And David Dobkin, our director, and and Andrew Steele, they, they had listened to it first. They're like, you, you, guess what? They've already written the first song. And it was, uh, I couldn't figure out whether to burst into tears or burst out laughing because he, yeah. like I said, he'd thread the, he'd thread the needle. It was, it was making me laugh so hard from the beginning. And yet at the same time, I was like, no, this is perfect. This is a Eurovision song. I can't believe it's yes. actually happening. So it was, it was very yes. cool. Finally, I'll mention the one that is now at the center of Oscar, Golden Globe buzz, all this stuff for original, for the original song. Forget about the Grammy nomination for the soundtrack. This one could independently uh, stand on its own. This is the one that we hear at the very end of the movie, uh, Husavik, yeah. hometown. Talk about that one. Well, Husavik is actually the name of the town that we that we shot in, but it in, but the song is Husavik in in my hometown. I think is what uh, the extended title is. And this is um, in terms of the math of the movie, it's a singing contest. And in the real Eurovision, you sing your same song over and over again. And we knew cinematically that what how is that going to work? Either, but we thought, why don't we? We need to have a different surprising ending. And 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 why don't we have a moment where Secret who Lars hasn't been listening to the whole time, unveils the song that she has written. And, and as the ultimate act of kind of friendship and love, he says, let's perform your song, even though I know we'll get disqualified. And so it's this beauty, it's, it's an amazing song that is actually really justifiably great. <laughs> and, it really is. Um, and it's sung by, um, this Swedish singer, Molly Sandin, Molly, who I had emailed with her. And I said, Molly, I hope you're getting all this praise. I hope you're, you're getting it back in Sweden. She's like, I can't believe it. It's so cool. Cause she personally has auditioned for Eurovision three different times, I think. Oh my God. So she says, it almost feels like I've won now with this that's single great. out there. And so it's so great. And I know David Dobkin had told that that's a song they really, he, David deserves a lot of credit and seven, of course, but he really, they went back and forth 15 different times on trying to figure out what this song was going to be. And they finally got there and it, it's, uh, it would be great to see it nominated in, in yes. some of these other ways. That'd be so cool. Well, and, and you actually do a lot of your, I mean, I think you do your singing in this, yeah, right? Yeah. I, I got to do all, which was another it's a nice, fun, nice voice. I, yeah. Yeah. I get to, uh, all the times I watch my dad play in smoky bars, I now get to <laughs> now get to sing. So tried, tried again to 
put this out there for academy members who may be listening if that song is nominated can we get a commitment right now from will ferrell that you will perform it on the oscars oh my god of course absolutely okay, okay. okay that would I'll, be great i'll go and there hope- right now <laughs> i just live up Hopefully, the street i live up yeah, the street yeah i'll just hang out at hollywood and highland <laughs> um okay so just very final minute here um another oscar related question is it true that the the academy sort of blew it with the 84th Oscars. This is the one where Eddie Murphy had, you know, chose to drop out at the last minute, the one that was going to honor the films of 2011. They now didn't have a host with, like, the show imminent. And was there a chance that you were going to do that? I had been, I've been asked a handful of times, and there Mm -hmm. was a chance, yeah, I actually was working on a, um, I was doing the campaign with Zach Galifianakis. um, Mm -hmm. And I said to Zach, I'm like, Zach, I've got this crazy idea, but I want to see, I want to get your, I, I want to talk to you about it first. And I said, Zach, what if we called up the OS, the powers that be, and just throw it out there that they maintain the position of like, we can't get anyone to host. We don't know what we're going to do. And that you and I are going to host it, but we play the entire show as if we've been asked at the last second to host. <laughs> so we don't know what camera we're on. We don't know, you know, there's a musical number that we're, we're missing the steps. We don't know. And that the whole thing is purposely a disaster. <laughs> and Zach was like, I'm in. And, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't, uh, yeah, it, they, it didn't get, didn't get accepted. <laughs> well, I, I hope that one day we're lucky enough to get to see you do that because it is, I miss having a host. I think it would be, it would be cool and you would be perfect. But um, number two of three, just would the pandemic ever be funny? Could you see yourself doing a movie related to the pandemic? It's fun. It's a really good question because uh, I, I, I had often thought about that. Is there, is there a take that's uh, observant? of all the things we've all had to go through that's, uh, that's not, that's sensitive to how painful it's been for so many people and, and for everyone to some degree. And it, I don't know, there, actually there was, there was something that was just pitched to me that was a, 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 a version of something where it was incorporating an experience that uh, someone was going through an experience and then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and it changes their whole life. And I, I was like, oh, this could work. Yeah, this could work. So I, I don't know. I, I think there there will be, um, we'll start to see things that treat it respectfully and and um, in a humorous way that's that's kind of something we can all digest and yeah. and makes it, you know, allows us to look back and go, yeah, that's, that's kind of what was going on. But I yeah. think it's possible. Yeah. 
Finally, I don't know if you have any plans or desire to do more dramatic movies, but if you, either way, can you just talk about, it seems like comedy has never been as respected by critics, by awards people, by, you know, they're obviously the audience votes and they show up for right. for them, but uh, should comedy acting be treated as respect, you know, with as much respect and gravitas as dramatic? And I think you, you are the best person in the world we could ask about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of have two schools of thought on that. What, one thought I had was that I, I really don't think there should be, they've tried a couple times to have comedy awards. Uh, I think uh, Comedy Central tried it and it's, it doesn't work. It's a bunch of snarky people accepting an award <laughs> <laughs> and it just blows up in your face. And right. I think, and I think if the Oscars had a comedy award, I just, I think it's, it's one of these things where there's some years where you look at movies and you're like, that should be not, that, that comedy should be nominated. There's other movies where other years where I'll, I'll even say myself as someone in comedy, like, no, there was some funny stuff, but none of them are, I think, worthy of being nominated. So I would challenge everyone to just try to have a more open mind on those exceptional years where you see a performance that's, that's when you really look at it to see how hard that is to do, that's where you allow yourself to go. Oh, that mm -hmm. should be, that should be awarded for best actor, best picture, regardless of mm -hmm. the comedy title. Um, right. And then I'll totally go against it at the same time by kind of uh, reflecting on something that I heard Jerry Seinfeld say that he said, uh, he said, you know what? We don't, we don't need awards. Getting to do this is the award. And, and I thought, God, that's, there's a lot of truth to that too, that just to be able to, to dream about making people laugh and actually have it happen, that's the award. Sorry. That's, that's so, I, I don't know if we need it really in a way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, uh, I cannot thank you enough for all the laughs and for doing this. It's really been such a, a thrill to get to have you on this podcast and um, just really appreciate okay. it. Thank you. It was really fun. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.